hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone, if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to my show, The Shift No One Tells You About Writing. I'm your host, Bianca Murray. Hi everyone. We'll be starting today's episode with our new segment, Books with Hooks, which we're really excited about. In it, super agents Carly Waters and Cecilia Lira from PS Literary Agency will be reading the query letters and opening pages you submit for their feedback. This is a wonderful opportunity for you to test run your submissions so that when you get them in front of your dream agents, you'll make the best possible first impression. If you'd like to participate, email your query letter and the first five pages of your novel in one document to theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com. Please redact any information you don't want us to share on the podcast, like your name or the title of your work. We're now looking at the submission from Writer A, Title A. Dear Cece and Carly, given your interest in contemporary romance, I hope you will consider my debut novel, Title A, Complete at 86,000 words, it is the bookish life of Nina Hill meets Almost Famous and will appeal to readers of Taylor Jenkins' read Meheri McFarland. Sarah McPhee, daughter of a one-hit wonder from the 80s, is a staff editor living in Boston, compiling top 10 lists for a glossy lifestyle magazine instead of writing album reviews for Rolling Stone, her dream job. Stemming from her childhood, which was prone to her mother's whims, Sarah has maintained the same routine, relationship and hairstyle for years. However, she is tired of being the human embodiment of background noise. After her longtime boyfriend dumps her, Sarah acknowledges that change is the only way to survive and uproots her life to go work for a beloved music magazine in the UK. Though she finds kinship in a staff of misfits, the publication, like Sarah, needs a drastic overhaul to prevent abject failure. Rob Evans is the lead singer of a London-based cover band. Lacking inspiration, he's content working a dead-end job and singing other musicians' hits. But when Sarah shows up at the bar where he's performing, her tenacity and energetic disposition ignite in him a long-buried ingenuity. Convinced she's only drawn to Rob's sound, she has no interest in getting her heart broken a second time, Sarah allows Rob to show her life's more fun and rewarding when you take chances. 
by launching a podcast to help save the magazine, getting on stage to perform her mom's single, and learning to play the guitar, Sarah attempts to live her life to a soundtrack of greatest hits. But when the attraction between herself and Rob threatens other relationships and the magazine continues to decline, Sarah must face the fact that moving to London might be her biggest flop yet. All right, Carly, why don't you start us off? Really, I thought that this project was very solid in terms of the opening line. The word count was appropriate for this this genre. And then we get to the middle section where... To me, I felt like having three paragraphs for the book content section felt a bit long for me. I thought it was interesting, but I did think it was long. And I also think that it sounded more like a synopsis than a pitch. So I would definitely, again, not not that anything's wrong with this, but for the sake of writing a great query letter, I would probably scrap this middle section and then start again, just writing it in a more pitchy way. Again, getting inspiration from back cover copy of other books and and that sort of thing. So there's, there's, I think there's a, a, would be an opportunity here just to kind of give it another fresh look and a fresh take but you know everything's there it's just not as salesy I guess as I would like it to be especially since this is a contemporary it's a contemporary romance projects or something um, that's probably very commercial so I think it should be a little bit more salesy. All right, Cece, what did you think of that query letter? So Carly mentioned that this query letter could use with some more salesy ring to it. And I agree. I think that's I think that's fair. I really like the the comps. I really like the first paragraph. I thought it was really well written. I do think that the second third and fourth paragraphs could be tightened a little. I never really mind when authors overwrite just a little, just because I have so much empathy for it, because that's what I do. I can, I can never write one sentence when I can write 10. So I get it. I feel for them. I will say that the inciting incidents read a little vague and generic. What I mean by that specifically is second paragraph, she says, however, she's tired of being the human embodiment of background noise, which by the way, great line. And then after her longtime boyfriend dumps her, she, then she goes on this journey. A boyfriend dumping you, it's not that it's not a big thing, because of course it is. But this is like women's fiction. I would expect something a bit more, like perhaps something more dramatic. Like maybe he dumped her after she found out that, I don't know, he was sleeping with her best friend. I mean, I'm not trying to change the plot of your novel. I'm just saying that it felt a little generic, right? Like it felt like the inciting incident was something that was too commonplace. And that happens again in the following paragraph when she shows up at the bar where he's performing and she decides that she has no interest in getting her heart broken a second time, right? Like, so it's both the inciting incident and the the push and pull that will keep them from getting together or not, right? Like it's 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 sort of a rom-com. I felt like it was a little generic. I think that she could lean into more specificity and a bit more drama when choosing these inciting incidents. Maybe it's just my taste though. So I overall thought that this was a very cute project, again, very commercial. The only thing, and I, I don't know if this is just a taste issue for me because I represent a lot of commercial books, but it, so it could just be my taste, is that I felt like it was trying to be a little bit too cutesy. And again, I might just not have cutesy taste, but I thought that the dialogue was not sounding very natural. And the idea, the author kind of explains like the the back and forth between the, the sibling characters, you know, they're trying to do this kind of repeating song lyrics back to each other. And that's kind of their shtick which it's fine to have a shtick, but I just felt for the sake of the actual book, it sounded very unnatural to me that they right away, you know, in a, in a quick conversation, have all of these song lyrics and bands. And I don't know, I don't know anybody that that, that is that witty off the cuff, and especially two siblings having a um, an unplanned call just back and forth. So, so yeah, I thought, um, you know, it just wasn't sounding as natural as I, as I wanted it to be. But again, I understand that we're trying to go with a music theme. So we're bringing in lots of, you know, music references, song lyrics, band titles, that sort of thing. So I get it. The only other thing that I would note about the tone, and again, this is probably just telling me that this book isn't for me, is that the voice felt a bit young. It felt a little bit YA. I wasn't feeling like this was definitely an adult manuscript. It's interesting because Carly mentioned that the voice was young and I hadn't thought of it, but once once she said it, I agree. My first note, and this is a 100% a taste thing, is that I don't like when books start when the person's waking up. Like, it just feels a little boring and done. Like, I think there are more interesting ways that she could start this. The character's at a really interesting moment in her life. So I would just pick like same scene, but different moment in the scene. We then go through her routine and 
on the very first page, that's not great for tension, which actually got me thinking, like regarding the breakup. Traditionally, in order to feel for the character, we need to see the breakup. We need to see the guy breaking up with a girl or, you know, the guy breaking up with a guy or, or whatever. In this case, it's a guy breaking up with a girl to care, to feel invested in the character's predicament. However, if that would like slow down the pace, I appreciate that maybe we don't have to see it. But then maybe we could have the breakup still be more active in the character's mind by, I don't know, by something really simple. Like for example, she, her phone's ringing, right? Very first scene. Maybe she could be rushing to find her phone because she really hopes it's him. Or I don't know, the doorbell could ring and she could wonder whether it's, you know, he changed his mind. I don't know. Like something to show us where she is with that breakup so we can feel for her. Like one of the ways to make us feel for her is to immerse us in that scene. But another way is to just show how sort of desperate she is. And it has to be a very acute emotion, like either desperation or and hopefully an active emotion, not just sadness, because sadness can be read as passive. And that's not great for the first page for my taste. You know, one great line in the very first page that I highlighted and I was so happy to see was considering my mother's lack of interest in anyone who isn't her, this is possibly the most thoughtful she has ever been. That tells me so much. That tells me about the character. It tells me about her relationship with her mom. That tells me what her mom's perception of her boyfriend is in one line, right? Like one line, you impact so much. So great job. Please lean into that. That was great. We are getting her emotion. We're getting her stomach dipping when she's worried that she emailed Ben. We're getting, you know, her, her nervousness when she checks her emails. But I don't love the idea of her not quite remembering that she sent the email for the interview. It's taking away from her protagonism. Everything is being decided by external factors, like he, him breaking up with her or by her being drunk and not remembering what she was doing. That being said, having read the query letter, I appreciate that this is a huge part of her character arc, like freeing herself from the mundane life and find, finding protagonism. I still would have liked to see her inner life be a bit more take charge, but again, might be a taste thing. There were a couple of moments in, in the dialogue where I just wanted to know the tone that the character had happens a lot when I'm editing things. When she's talking to her brother, he asks, is that even possible? What happened about the breakup? What was his tone? Like, I, I want you to tell me that. That is your job as a narrator. The narrator should do the heavy lifting. And then page, page five, her brother asks her, when is she moving out? And she says, I hadn't thought of that yet. And I'm like, I don't buy this. Like, it's an apartment that her ex-boyfriend's parents purchased. She has thought about it. The only person in the world who wouldn't have thought about it is a super wealthy person, like extremely, extremely wealthy. And in that case, she wouldn't be living in her in the apartment that her boyfriend's parents bought. And then my other general note is, this is a great story. This is exactly what I would want to, the kind of book that I would want to read. But the first pages aren't doing it justice because there's not enough tension. I want to find a different word because I feel like people are going to start playing a drinking game with their coffee because I say tension all the time, but there isn't enough tension. My suggestion to this author is to make a list of all the things the reader is learning in these first five pages, um, including if information is repeated, like go paragraph by paragraph and write down what the reader is learning. If you are repeating information, write that repetition and then review that and take a look to see how much repetition is there and take a look to see what you're telling your reader and see if that's intentional. Because if it is, then fine, then that's, it's your book. It makes total sense. But if it's not, then it might not just be my taste. It might, my notes might make sense. We're now looking at a query letter for a novel called The Way Back from writer X. Dear Carly and Cece, Pepper Blackwell has been on her family's reality TV show since she was nine. Now at age 21, her contract is up for renewal. The show is going on hiatus and the family is headed to their ranch to get away from it all. Pepper decides to really get away and ditches the caravan from Nashville. She heads north until she reaches Borland Falls, Maine, a town where she hopes she can be unrecognized and where her momager and the Tumblr detectives can't find her. It should be easy. Her fake boyfriend can hang out on the ranch and play house and calm her mother down. The family can use old photos for her Instagram and cameras are nowhere to be found. And Pepper, now Anne, can start over with her real face, real hair and real friends. But freedom and privacy have their price. For someone whose every move and milestone was documented, Pepper is finding it hard to be anonymous and invisible and starts to take tiny peeks back at her old life. 
Meanwhile, some of her fans are starting to suspect she's not at the ranch. Her mother is eager to get her brood back together and Peppa's new friends might want something from her after all. Will she say goodbye to what she's known and claim a life of her own making? Or will she give in to the familiar pressure and put herself last yet again? Worse, will she be an instrument in her own destruction? The Way Back at 85,000 Words will appear to readers of Beach Read and The Idea of You, although with far fewer sex scenes. I'm a graduate of Grub Street's novel Incubator and an attorney when I'm not writing. Very truly yours, Writer X. I really like the idea of this one. It reminded me of the book of Essie. I don't know if any of you guys have read that one, but she didn't have the book of Essie as a comp. And I thought that was a great comp because that's about a family who does reality TV. And so that just felt like a better comp to me than I've read Beach Read and it's great. I haven't read The Idea of You, but she, she said here with far fewer sex scenes. So, um, so I haven't read that one. I'm assuming it's a romance novel or something a little bit more uh, on uh, higher on the heat factor. Book of Essie is a bit more literary. I think it was published by Knopf, but it's it would be a great comp. So I would just throw in the book of Essie, read that one. And so, yeah, I thought that, again, I was just a little bit unclear. So there, there are some things about her family's going on some sort of road trip and she jumps off the road trip. And and so I, ca- I couldn't figure out if, if they're going to Nashville or it's just she's going to Nashville or where they're all going. That was a little bit confusing to me. She also talks about Tumblr and Tumblr is like a little bit dated. It's not like the most up-to-date social media platform, especially for a family that is really into reality television. So I thought maybe putting in TikTok there would have been better than Tumblr. And I also, I really liked, again, the whole idea of this. I love the book of Essie. So I love this kind of behind the scenes take of a, of a family who is on a reality television show. I think you do have to be pretty careful about how you do that sort of thing, because from a reader's perspective, why do they want to read this book instead of watching Kardashians, right? So it's like from a pure, pure entertainment point of view, you have to this has to be just as interesting as the Kardashians. So I just think when you're talking about reality TV in a book, the stakes are really high. And that's why the book of Essie did such a great job of like some twists, and, you know, in the point of view of that, we're just like not sure who to trust and, and, you know, what's going on. So, so yeah, I think, I just think the stakes are high when we're talking about reality TV and books. And I know that some editors specifically on their wish list um, don't want reality television books. So certain editors love them, certain editors don't. And the only other thing I would edit out of this query letter would be the rhetorical questions. So we have, will she say goodbye? to what she's known and claim a life of her own making or will she give into the familiar pressure and put herself last yet again worse will she be an instrument in her own destruction so i just don't love rhetorical questions and and many agents don't i think they're probably you can just cut this that both lines or you can reword it in a way that's more of a sentence than a question. My first note is that if I had gotten this query letter, I would be 100% requesting the pages like based on the query letter alone because it's it just seems like a fun novel to read. I will say though that the query letter could use with more specificity. Like I love starting over stories. I love stories where women are taking charge of their lives and but I just didn't think there was enough specificity. I was confused about what exactly was going on and that's something Carly mentioned too that it was confusing. So maybe review that and try to be a bit more specific and intentional with the plot. That being said, writing a query letter is really hard. So I absolutely appreciate that. Carly, what do you think about the first five pages? So right off the bat, I felt like we were introducing a lot of characters. There's a lot of people. And I think that when you're introducing a lot of people, you kind of, writers feel like you either have to go the info dump route where you have to kind of tell everything about these people and the, and other people want to completely avoid that and not do the info dump so they don't tell us anything about the characters. And I think this author fell on the side of not telling us anything about the people. So we have, we have the mom character, we have Pepper, Birdie. Aubrey, Camp, Cricket, like there's just a lot of names. Um, so for me, I just felt like I, there was just so much happening that I couldn't really uh, keep everybody straight. And also what they looked like, like I just needed a little bit more of not info dump territory, but I definitely needed to know a little bit more about what everybody looks like and that sort of thing. It also felt... Again, this felt a little bit young to me because there's kind of a mom telling all of the kids what to do. And again, I, I think this is kind of a, a Chris Kardashian talking to the Kardashians situation where, you know, there is a matriarch setting the tone for this, but it felt very 
bossy in a way where I'm, I just wasn't really convinced that these characters were adults. Um, but I know that's kind of part of the book. And that's why I think we have to explain a little bit more about the characters. You know, what do they look like? How old are they? Et cetera, et cetera. That, that would have been a little bit more helpful to me. And we're also talking about like a fake boyfriend. And that's like a very kind of like way thing. But I understand this is for the context of the media and that sort of thing. So I would just like to know a little bit more about what the characters look like, you know, what is the ranch? Where are they going? That sort of thing. And there was a couple things where I would want to know more. So I wanted to make a note of that. There was a line, they were talking about the faux boyfriend um, trying to sell nudes and pass them off as the character. Um, and the mom says like, oh, that wasn't you. Like that, those were fake nudes. And then the next line is, they were of me, Pepper thought. And so we just kind of moved right on. And so I like, how would you feel about, you know, your nudes being leaked? Like you're, you know, someone that is on television, we presume has a big social media presence. I don't know, just to skip over the fact that your nudes were leaked. Like that's also like sexual doxing, right? Like if somebody's putting your nudes up there, like without your consent, like I just had a lot of questions about, about that. And so it didn't tell me enough about the, if the point of this is that she is willing to skip, skip over her nudes being leaked, kind of suggests there's a lot going on in her head and she doesn't actually care about her identity to her own body and like her image being out there. If that's the route we're going, I want to know more about that type of personality. Cause that's also very interesting. But if the if the author was trying to just kind of layer in some details and not go in that direction, then I just need more. Like, I just need to understand why this character doesn't care about their nudes being leaked. So that was something that I would really, you know, want to know more of. But yeah, there was there was just a great, there's a great premise here. And so that's why I think that I, I want to know more. I'm very curious about this. I want to know what the characters, I want to know where they're going, but trying to do so much so quickly and, and just not kind of ground us in what they look like was, was just a bit hard for me to get on board with. And I just didn't really feel like, the, you know, this was complete and whole in terms of ready to go. And yeah, just again, felt a little young. So I'm just wondering if this is the right place to start with the mom bossing everybody around as opposed to Pepper kind of being in her own womanhood and, and kind of ex- explaining all of that sort of stuff to the reader. Perfect. Thanks, Carly. Right off the bat, the first lines, the whole first paragraph, my advice is to scrap it, start over. I really don't like dialogue in the first, as, as, as the first line, but that is a taste thing. However, I will explain why I don't like that. Agents are looking for voice, right? Like the number one thing, if you list, talk to an agent is what they want in a writer is voice. The way to know if you have a well-developed voice is to see how you narrate first. So if you must start with dialogue, start with something intriguing. Don't start with what is essentially like a to-do plan, right? Like we're going over what the family is going to do. So you're going to do this and you're going to do that and you're going to pack this and you're going to grab that. And I understand why, like it's a reality TV show family. So we need to see them like rallying to, to play a part, but it's just, it's just not a compelling way to start the story for my taste. I, I like that the author did a really good job of showing the impact that the show had in their lives. Like she mentions a couple of times, you know, before the show, this was our reality. And with the show, this is now our reality, meaning they have more money and and more opportunities. So that's really good because it explains to me why they're so attached to the show. It's not just the fame. But I think that there were a few missed opportunities to show the main character's frustrations about the show. For example, first page, paragraph four. The main character mentions, um, although having it occur right before the three-month break in filming could also be considered tough, as it left out the possibility for tearful family meetings. Essentially, she's having to think of her life or the, the life that they're portraying in a calendar, right? And that's really hard. Like, imagine... I, I feel for this character, like life, real life is hard enough. And for you to have to follow a schedule, meaning like for the dramatic thing to have to happen at the end of the season. So there's a cliffhanger. So these are all really specific things that are challenging in this character's life. And I would like to see more development about that. Again, I have another note here, like, please stop giving me the plan of action of what's happening. Unless it's an argument, unless they're fighting over something. I never think it's a good idea to have family chiming in on a plan of action right in the beginning, because we don't know enough about the people to understand why they're chiming in and what they're saying and what's behind their words. So yeah, I feel like if you were to add an argument that would give attention and it would be a good way to show how each character is different and what sorts of emotions, resentment or jealousy or whatever else are simmering beneath the surface. The dialogue didn't feel supernatural to me. And I will give you an example. When um, When Cricket mentions Brian and she goes, my fake boyfriend, 
I'm not bringing my fake boyfriend. I mean, Cricket knows that Brian is her fake boyfriend. Like she's she's adding that to the dialogue to tell the reader. And I think that, again, the narrator needs to do the heavy lifting, not the dialogue. This isn't a script, right? If it were, it'd be different. Then I have another note for the author, which is the fake boyfriend is, is gay. And I'm wondering why. Perhaps there's a really good reason for this, but I would urge the author to consider the reason for that if she doesn't already know it. Because unfortunately, it's it's a trope that we see, you know, in order to make a relationship fake, he has to be gay because otherwise, if he were straight, there would be sexual tension between them. And that's just not true. Sometimes two people are attracted to, to, this, to the sex of the other person and they still and they still don't aren't attracted to each other. So I would I would consider, you know, why why did you choose his for his sexual orientation to to be gay, given that he's a fake boyfriend. And if there's a reason, then fine, it's, it's, it can work. And if there's not, then maybe reconsider that. Very minor note, I don't recommend quotation marks for texting, especially when you're have using quotation marks and italics. It's like verbal littering on the page. Don't, don't do that. Something I recommend to my students then is to change the font of texting so that it almost resembles texting font. Same goes for, you know, if you're doing a Twitter post or if you're showing an Instagram or a Facebook, Facebook post, you know, so keep your italics for inner monologue for thoughts or for foreign words. And then, you know, use quotation marks for things that are said out loud. And, you know, there's nothing to say you can't have fun with changing fonts just to indicate to you know the reader that this is a text message. I 100% agree that changing the font for text messages and other like posts and stuff is perfect. Um, I would say pick one font, right? Like don't pick a different font for each time because I've seen that too. Yeah, it's a great device. So on page page three, I think, there's a part where Pepper is smiling at the image, wishing there was someone who actually wanted to cuddle under blankets with her in more than a platonic way. See, to me, when I read that line, I was like, I want more. I talk a lot on this podcast about tension. And one of the ways to accomplish tension is to have the main character feeling something naughty, something. And by that, I mean, K-N-O-T-T-Y, like something that something that you have to untangle. And unravel, like complicated feelings, feelings on feelings on feelings, feelings that require unraveling and that ramp up the stakes, um, aspiring to something you don't have, but being close to something that resembles it is a great way to accomplish that. It shows what the character wants. It shows what she can't have. It's There's great opportunity to, to really dig into those emotions. And right now, the story doesn't have that tension. My advice to this to this writer, because this is such a good idea, and my, my guess, I could be wrong, is that the reason why there was a bit of info dumping and a few too many characters and not enough development of the sense of emotion and tone is because you were trying to accomplish a lot in the first pages, which actually shows that you understand how ambitious this project is, which is a good thing. So I think it's really about tweaking the execution. And my big advice to you would be, Pretend like it's a therapy session. Sit down with your main character. You're going to be both therapist and patient and talk about her feelings, talk about her motivations, talk about uh, it's a safe space, right? Because it's therapy. Have literally a therapy session with your main character and write down all the feelings that are within the feelings. It's like one of those Russian dolls, right? Like go, go in and dig deep. And once you have that, that'll be your emotional roadmap for the first chapter. And it's important that you then show this to someone else and ask them, what is the main character feeling? And if they can't tell, then you, the, the scene isn't conveying the emotion. So that would be my big note. A way to avoid that is to not have so many characters be introduced so early on so that you can really immerse yourself in that character. So perhaps there's a point at which the story could be begun where we just focus on the main character as opposed to the extended family and all the action of that. Because dialogue at the best of times is incredibly difficult to write, even if it's just two characters. And once you start adding three characters, more characters, it starts becoming a complete juggling act. And as the writer, you are so busy juggling that you don't have time to stand still and really do that deep dive into any of the characters. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And if you do need all the characters on the page, then remember they're not the protagonist, right? And maybe she could just be more in her head. I I don't know. It's I do think that if you can avoid starting with a lot of characters, that is definitely a good idea. Let's look at the query letter from Diana Carolina. Dear Bianca, Cecilia and Carly, 
18-year-old Elijah Dawson has been imprisoned at the Lyceum for half his life. Being a conjurer, born with the power to manipulate the world, is a high crime in Soren. To make matters worse, he accidentally killed his parents when he accidentally burnt his home down nine years ago. When another conjurer escapes captivity, Elijah is given more than a chance at freedom. He'll get to keep his promise to protect his sister, Cora. He has two weeks to find and return the most powerful conjurer in the city, but if he fails, the director will take his sister's life in exchange for the conjurers. 17-year-old Helena Castle escaped the Lyceum wanting one thing, revenge. After 11 years of waiting, she'll kill her deserting father and happily be the monster everyone believes she is. After all, what more could she hope for? As a conjurer, she doesn't get to wish for family, culture or a future. That's not the deal she made. But when Elijah discovers Helena and his sister made a separate deal behind the director's back, they must work together to find Helena's father in the time they have. If they can find him, Helena will willingly go back to the Lyceum after she gets her revenge and Elijah will get to save his sister's life. If the director discovers their plan, they're dead. However, Helena and Elijah should also be careful of the people closest to them. The Conjurous Flame, 94,000 words, is a dual POV YA contemporary fantasy novel set in a fictional city in modern-day America with crossover and series potential. My magic system and diverse cast of characters will appeal to fans of Avatar, The Last Airbender, and those who love legend-born themes of family identity and uncovering truths about the past will find they play a crucial role in my protagonist's development too. I'm a 22-year-old bilingual Venezuelan immigrant, which inspired elements of my story. Since graduating from Texas A&M University with a Bachelor of Arts in English, I'm now a content marketer for a tech company. Thank you for your time and consideration, Diana Carolina. Right, we're going to have Carly kick us off with the next query letter as well. So I think we talked about this in a previous episode, but the way that I like queries to be written is that I like the title, the word count, the genre and everything at the top. So this is like my style is just, I prefer that at the top. This person decided not to do that again, which is fine. A lot of agents do prefer it at the bottom, but I will say one of the things that I really liked about this query is if you're not going to have those details at the top, uh, the first line is 18 year old Elijah Dawson. So right away, I know it's YA. Um, and then they talk about being imprisoned in the in the Lyceum for half of his life. So right away, we kind of know it's an alternate world. So this this query actually did a really great job of telling me so much in one line that I that it is okay that all that description is at the bottom for me. And overall, like I I thought we got right to the plot. I think a lot of times with fantasy novels. We end up doing a lot of world building, but I like that we get right in right into the plot. Uh, for example, it says he accidentally killed his parents when he burnt down his home nine years ago. Like that is a that's a huge deal. Like we're getting we're getting into um, you know a lot of great detail here. And the next paragraph, I I would suggest being just a little bit more clear. I <laughs> one of CC's lines is always I have a lot of sympathy, you know, for this, and I have a lot of sympathy for writing a fantasy query. They are so hard. So you have to build the whole world. Tell us about all the characters tell about their hero's journey. Like I, I have a lot of sympathy for fantasy queries. So I will say that. So in this case, uh, my, my sympathy line is that I would like to know a little bit more um, off the bat about what the hero's journey is specifically. So we have when another conjurer escapes captivity, Elijah is given more than a chance at freedom. He'll get to keep his promise to assist, to protect his sister, Cora. He has two weeks to find and return the most powerful conjurer in the city. But if he fails, the director will take his sister's life in exchange for the conjurer. So this is a great hook, but I would have really liked just to spell it out that his job is to hunt this person and bring them back. Like, I thought it was a little vague because we're talking about another conjurer escaping captivity. It never says that Elijah is let out of captivity too. I don't know. I was just a little bit confused about who was in captivity and who like where the hero's journey was, those types of things. So I don't know. I just get a little bit more clear with that. But as has been said before, um, this is not my primary category that I represent. So I'm just looking at this from a purely kind of plot uh, plot point of view. Um, but overall, you know, that was my only note. I thought it was great. I liked the author bio at the at the bottom, just kind of letting us know a little bit about you. And and I thought it was very professional. Um, very, very well done. Okay, Cece, what do you think of, of this query letter? The Conjurer's Flame. That is a great title, Diana. I have very few notes in this query letter. Like Carly, I like the book hook cook 
method. But again, that is a matter of taste. I will say that, was I confused about where the hero's journey was? Yes and no. Yes, in the sense that I probably couldn't explain it to you based on the query letter alone in detail, but I could tell that it was a complicated family situation and I could tell what the stakes were. I think that would be enough for me. I did think there were perhaps a bit too many beats. On the other hand, though, like having a lot of beats gives me a good sense of the story. I loved the the author sharing a little bit about herself at the end. That was that was really nice. Yeah, it's a strong query letter. I would try to to shorten it. I do think that's good. I will say though that I I read it and I I thought to myself, oh, I think this person can write really well on a line level. And then I got to the pages and yes, she can write really well on a line level. It's a rare thing to see because it's just such a joy when you can tell that the person has a voice right from the query letter. And in this case, I could. So very, very strong writing. Carly, what do you think about the opening pages? Okay. So the opening pages were very strong for this one. We were starting with the prologue, which, you know, isn't always everybody's favorite, but in this case, I really liked it because even in the pitch, we kind of know that something happened in the past that kind of sets off this character's journey for the future. And it was also very gripping. Um, it's essentially the scene where we it says the night his home burned down and it tells us kind of about Elijah and his conjuring and, and that sort of thing. So because this is a fantasy novel, one of my main notes from this prologue section was just that because we're building a world, I really wanted to know what this room looked like and the house looked like and, and just kind of, because we get a lot into the conjurer stuff, but we don't actually get into what this world looks like. So I thought that the author did an amazing job getting right into the plot, really juicy about the skills of this conjurer, the family drama, um, they have to kind of escape and, and get away. And the dad comes in and, and has these like lovely touching lines about, you know, how important his children are to him um, and that sort of thing. So, so yeah, I thought overall it was was an action-packed fantasy query and pages, and, and I was uh, I was very impressed by it. Again, I agree with Carly. Usually I'm not a fan of prologues. In this case, it's working. Yeah, keep your prologue. It's fine. My first note is such a silly note, and it's right at the bottom of the first page. And with every other query, I, I sorry, with every other pages that I look at, my note is always at the very top. So this just shows how strong this was. So Elijah, Ellie's talking to his sister, Cora, okay? And he's trying to control fire. And she... She's his baby sister. We know this um, because it's in the pages. She tells him, you're going to try to control it, aren't you? Can we please get some sense of her tone or her face? Because this is a relationship between a big brother and a baby sister. It's super important for me to understand. Is she like kind of saying that with awe because she looks up to her big brother? Or is she is she scared because he's gotten in trouble before? I, I want more emotion. I want very short, very brief, not five lines or anything. Like sometimes it's four words. I will say that I think the dialogue could be a little less generic. Like why doesn't she reference again so we know it's a pattern, him trying to control fire or call him incorrigible, although she wouldn't use that word because she's his baby sister and he's 10. But 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 say something like, oh, you keep doing this, you know, like good dialogue contains layers and it shows the relationship between the characters in addition to conveying information. So for example, it shows how close someone is to the person they're talking to. It shows if there's any tension between them, if there's anything unsaid, because we get to be inside the main character's head. So we know what they're not saying. It shows how honest the narrator is being with the other person. You know, if they're saying one thing and thinking another, there's no honesty. But if, if their thoughts match, match their dialogue, but with extra layers, then they're being pretty honest. It also shows how, how different people's personalities can be. And I think it's really important, especially when you're talking about a brother and a sister, very first pages to make them totally different. One of them can be more soft-spoken. The other one can be more impatient. Just to show, like, it's important to have contrast in, in storytelling. Second page, he was a conjurer. He'd been born with the ability to manipulate the world with his mind, but he'd never tried to wield fire before. And it goes on to explain a little bit more. It's about two paragraphs of just not quite world building, I'm sure, well, character building within the world building scenario. So I think that instead of just saying it, instead of saying he was a conjurer, say it by infusing the emotion on how he feels about it. We're inside his head after all. Something like, it's not something he'd admit out loud, but Ellie loved being a conjurer. And then you can explain what that means. Because that way you're telling us two things. One, that he's a conjurer. And two, 
that he that he isn't comfortable admitting that he loves being a conjurer, but he does love it. So again, I want to see those layers. Very, very well written. I cannot underscore how well written this was. Loved things like, you know, when I say well written on a line level, a lot of the time people ask me like, what does that mean? One of the ways you know is if the words are intentional and if the verbs and nouns are very specific. So Cora asked, worry sneaking into her voice. It's such a simple thing, but it's it's great. Like I, I always recommend that authors, you know, review the, their favorite books like for a second time. It can't be the first time you're reading it because you won't be able to, I think. And highlight intentional verbs. Start with the verbs. I feel like it's easier because verbs contain action. And it just it helps so much to understand how to make your writing stronger on a line level. And yeah, I also think that, you know, when he's talking to his sister and she says, uh, he tells her actually, mom and dad said I could be my, I could be, it could be myself as long as they're around. They'll protect me. She had just asked him if he would get in trouble. I don't think that sounds supernatural. Like she would already know, right? Like she, she would already know what the arrangement is. It's, they're a family, they're brother and sister, they're close. Also want to say the paragraph that starts with Cora remaining silent. Island and looking into her crystal blue eyes. I love it so much. She was, it's like she was playing chess with herself, thinking 10 moves ahead. What a great line. Like this whole paragraph is just great. I really enjoyed it. And then my question is, why is Cora not afraid? Like, I'm not, I don't want the author to answer this in the pages because I, I like that I have a question and I'm still going to figure this out. But one of the ways to know if you're being an effective writer is to understand what sorts of questions you're prompting your reader to ask. The question you're prompting me to ask, well, one of them is, why isn't his baby sister afraid? He's playing with fire. She's a small child. She should be afraid, right? Is it her personality? Is she like a daredevil? Or is it that she trusts him so much that she he couldn't do no wrong? Which doesn't sound super believable given that they're trying to hide his identity. So I think that their house would be filled with tension in a bad way. Like their house would probably be a house where she would associate his powers with danger, right? But I don't know. So these are good questions that I'm asking myself. This is a good sign. The author did a great job of weaving in emotion. However, and this may be my taste, I don't think he sounded like a 10-year-old. He sounded more mature. Is that intentional? So I don't know. I liked that he mentioned things like Cora's presence had always made him braver. It's just good detail. I, I really liked this. And yeah, I, I also think that my other note, plot note, is when the dad shows up towards the end, he asks them what they're doing. And there's this whole back and forth before he says, we have to go, they found us. I didn't think that was super believable. If a parent knows that someone is coming after their child, they open the door and the first thing they say is pack your bags, we have to go. There's no kids, what are you doing? Right? Like it's like, like skip that part, I think. And then yeah, we have to see more of the dads and patients. That's, that's my other note. I have no huge big picture notes for this author because it's just so good. So, such quality. I, I don't gravitate towards this genre and I had a great time reading this. So brava. Excellent feedback there for, for Diana. Thank you. Thank you, Cece. And a question we had from one of our submitters for you, Collie, is why is it that PS Literary doesn't request the first few pages of a novel when people query? Why is it just the query letter? So that's an interesting question because we actually recently changed it. So for years, we just did the query letter only and we just felt like you know, that was the way we wanted to go about it. Whenever an agency starts these kind of submission protocols, it, it, they're usually from a long time ago. And so I've, I've been with the agency however many years now, 11 years, and it's just kind of what we always did. The reason being is that kind of back when the internet began, there was all of those issues about attachments and malware and spam and, and things getting triggered and trapped and, you know, all of these sorts of, you know, internet rabbit holes and kind of hacking and that sort of thing. So that's why we just thought let's just eliminate any opportunity opportunity for, for anything to go wrong. And we'll just go with the query letter. But recently we've actually changed it. So if you do go on our website today, you will see that the change is that we do accept pasted pages in the bottom of the query letter. So that is a, that is an accurate question, but we've actually recently changed it. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. 
Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Don't forget that I've got various creative writing courses coming up. Head to my author page at biancamaray.com to get more information on dates, fees, and registration details. Also, CC will be offering one-on-one -on -one meetings and critique services via Manuscript Academy, which is a year-round online writers conference. You can find more details at manuscriptacademy.com forward slash Cecilia Dash Lira. Today's guest is an American food and travel writer and the best-selling author of The Lost Vintage and three other books. A frequent contributor to the New York Times travel section, she lives in Paris and Hanoi, Vietnam, where her husband is on diplomatic assignment. It's my pleasure to welcome Anne Ma. Anne, welcome to the show. It's so wonderful to have you on it here with us today. It's great to be here. I love your show, Bianca. Thank you very much. So you are a food and travel writer besides being a novelist. So you know a thing or two about traveling, about the overlap of fact and fiction, and certainly allowing your travels to inspire your writing. Could you tell us a bit about that? Definitely. I actually worked in publishing for a while before I met my husband. And we got married. And a month later, we moved to Beijing, China, which meant that I gave up my job that I loved, my career as an editor. Uh, I worked at Viking Penguin at the time in New York and found myself what they call, I'm the, my husband is a diplomat, um, so we move every three or four years. And what they call the accompanying partners are trailing spouses, which someone told me they always think of that term as a piece of toilet paper <laughs> trailing around the shoe of their, <laughs> of their spouse. So I found myself in Beijing, unemployed, quite lost, identity crisis, but I had always dreamed of writing. And so that was where I really took the plunge and began writing. And my first assignments were for English language expat magazine called That's Beijing. And eventually I became their, their dining editor. And that was really how I got introduced to Beijing, to Chinese cuisine, really, to regional cuisine, was through these wonderful young Chinese people who worked there, expats who worked there, everyone who was just so enthusiastic about being in China at that time, at that moment to discover the culture, the new restaurants, the nightlife. It was a really exciting time there. It was right before the Olympics. And from that, I started pitching other articles to other publications. And at that same time, I started writing fiction. Um, and that is when I wrote my first novel, Kitchen Chinese, which was loosely based on my experiences in China about a young woman who discovers the country through its food. And 
just it all sort of grew from there. Amazing. All right. So, Anne, let's talk about setting. Let's talk about using your travels to inspire your writing. Has it been a case of as you've traveled and as you've gotten to know a place, suddenly stories came to you and they wouldn't have come to you at any other time if you hadn't been traveling at that particular place? If you could tell us about your personal experiences in terms of your travels influencing and inspiring your own writing? Well, I think whenever I travel somewhere, one of the first questions I always ask myself is, could I live here? Is this a place where I would want to live? And maybe that's born of moving every three or four years to foreign countries. Um, So I'm always sort of constantly, you know, questioning myself, is this somewhere that I could see myself making a life? And honestly, most of the time, the answer is yes. Uh, I'm really captivated by most of the places I visit in the world. So for example, in The Lost Vintage, my novel, which is set in France, Burgundy, France, and also in Paris, that really grew out of an experience I had writing a travel story about picking grapes for the wine harvest um, and imagining what a winemaker's life would be, and which seems so romantic. And yet in, in researching and actually participating in the harvest, volunteering, I grew to understand the many, many challenges that they face. But what really inspired me was the sort of ghostly atmosphere I felt hovering over the wine country of France. So yes, for me personally, I think a place really does get under my skin and I I think about it, I dream about it. And if I'm very lucky, a story does grow out of it. That's happened to me several times, not just in fiction, but also in nonfiction, uh, my travel writing. And in The Lost Vintage, I, I haven't read it yet. I was paging through it. There seem to be quite a few sections that are either journal entries or letters. Is it journal entries? So the book is a dual narrative. There are two time frames. There's a contemporary character named Kate who is studying to become a master of wine, which is the highest distinction in the wine world. Um, There are currently more American Nobel laureates than there are masters of wine from throughout the world. So it's an incredibly difficult exam to pass. It takes years of study, thousands of dollars, and it's something that she's very committed to, but she has a block and the block is against Burgundy wine, which is one of the world's greatest wines. You can't cannot become a master of wine without knowing Burgundy wine. So she goes to her family's vineyard. And of course, the reason for this block is are some family secrets, or as someone once said to me, not not what's been kept secret, but what's been kept unsaid, what's been kept unspoken in her family, and begins, goes there to help with the harvest and brush up on her knowledge, begins cleaning out the cellar at her family's domain, and discovers a locked a a hidden room as part of the cellar that contains resistance pamphlets and a cot and a cache of many hundreds of bottles of rare wine that had been hidden before the war. And the question is, who hid this wine? Why and why had it remained there for so many years? And then the second part of the narrative, the other main character is a young woman named Hélène, who is a teenager during the occupation. Um, She turns out to be a great aunt of our contemporary heroine, who is keeping a journal of her experiences during the war. Was she a resistance part of the resistance or as the family believes did she have a shameful secret and it's really that tension that forms the heart of the story so when it comes to epistolary novels this isn't that but I know a lot of writers want to write epistolary novels or novels based on journal entries and I always tell them to be a bit careful as they approach that because so much of that is telling versus showing you know and as writers we keep getting told show something thing, don't tell it. How do you make those those particular parts of the novel come alive so that it doesn't just feel like a character telling a journal something or telling somebody something in a letter? How do you vividly bring all those scenes alive so that 
those parts are as engaging, perhaps, as the parts that play out in scene? Well, I think actually that the I've had several readers tell me that they feel the journal entries are some of the more tense scenes where they were really on the edge of their seats. And I think that is because they take place during the war, which was an extremely tense time with many challenges. Another challenge for having um, a dual frame or a character epistolary you know, voice from the past is getting the voice separate and distinct from the other character. And I kind of accomplished that by, uh, in my mind, I thought of her speaking (laughs) in a more British way. So some of the vocabulary she used, uh, uses is, you know, purposely chosen from you know, old newspaper clippings or uh, magazine articles, or even I love to mine French sayings in English. For example, we say in English, it's the straw that broke the camel's back. But in French, their saying is it's the one drop of one last drop of water that makes the cup overflow. But going to your back to your point about creating tension in these scenes. I think it just really depends on the type. I think for an epistolary novel, it is a little more difficult because it is a letter that someone is writing to someone else. But for a journal, she is really just recreating for herself what she has experienced and setting it down as if it's a record of the things she's just experienced. And I love what you said earlier about having those two distinct voices, because that is the toughest part of writing dual narratives, is making sure that each character sounds very distinct from the one before, so that the reader immediately, as they begin reading, they know which character they're with, and there's never that blurring of the lines between the two as in terms of, well, which character is this now? And I love that you say you approached it in terms of thinking of her as being more British, because you know, I feel like as writers, we almost need to approach writing these characters in the same way that actors approach playing a role, is that you have to fully immerse yourself in that character, think like they do, become them, so that that voice becomes so utterly distinct, not only from the other character that you're writing in the dual narrative, but from your voice as author, because I feel like that can also be incredibly intrusive as well. Absolutely. I think that, especially when you're writing a historical character who is speaking, it's almost like you have to learn a different language to really convey who they are. Not just a not just a different vocabulary, but you know, a different sentence structure. Let's talk about your research because besides the fact that in writing a historical novel, you have to do a lot of research in terms of that time period, the historical context, the cultural references, all the rest of that. But I'm assuming you yourself are not a wine master. So that's something that you had to research as well. So how do you go about the process of, of research? How does that work for you? So as I mentioned, this book grew out of a travel story I wrote for the New York Times on picking grapes for the champagne harvest. And for a long time, I had wanted to write a book set in Burgundy, but it never really gelled for me until I did this travel story. Um, I really needed to go through the experience of living in a vineyard and working in a vineyard to be able to create these characters, both the ones in the past and the contemporary ones. I, I think it's maybe a strong point, but also my biggest downfall that the accuracy of the details is extremely important to me. And sometimes I read books where there are things I know are wrong. Like I was reading a book recently set in a vineyard where they describe the soil is very rich and moist and vineyard soil is is always dry and um, because grapevines love to suffer. That's what makes good good wine is, is a grapevine that is struggling to find nutrients and they push it all into their fruit. And when I come across things like that, it really, it makes me doubt the rest of the book, even though I know it's fiction. And I, and I think that it is so important to me. Uh, I probably spend too much time researching. For this book, for The Lost Vintage, it was incredibly important to me to not only work the harvest, but also to study wine itself. So I understood the vocabulary, the process of winemaking, and what modern winemakers or also, you know, 
50, 60, 80 years ago, those winemakers, their what their lives are like. So I actually did take, I did not become a master of wine because that takes decades or, you know, a decade, but I um, did take classes through the same organization of the Master of Wine program, which is called the WSET, the Wine and Spirits Education Trust, um, which gave me a real sense of what the wine world is like, the modern wine world, and the kind of competition my main character would be facing. I mean, it really was a bit like a blood sport with, you know, the professor calling on you to describe whatever you were tasting and whatever Sauvignon Blanc they had poured, and you having to identify the, the <laughs> key descriptors, and then people jumping all over you if maybe you got something wrong was a quite a stressful uh, atmosphere. So that was fun and interesting experience as well. That makes me laugh because my husband and I joined a a wine club in South Africa many, many years ago. And uh, we also found the blood sport aspect of it quite... It put us off a bit, but we also found it amusing. So the one day when somebody asked him what he got, he said grapes, and that was not a very popular answer. <laughs> but but I also love what you said about making the, the vines suffer, and that creates good wine. Because I feel like, man, as writers, the more we suffer, the better our art is as well. So there's definite <laughs> parallels right. there. That is an excellent metaphor that I feel I'm currently living. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah we, we, we have to suffer for our art. So, um, okay, so in terms of the, the research to find out more about the time that didn't necessarily have anything to do with the wine in terms of what was happening in the world at that time, how did you immerse yourself in that kind of research? Were you reading books about that time frame? Were you in libraries, online research? How did you approach that? Definitely books, not, you know, academic books that had eyewitness accounts were extremely useful. Also films made just after the war or newsreels from around the same time. Photographs from the time of that I was writing about. One of the main themes of the book is the shorn women of Europe or of France specifically. Women who were accused of collaboration Many of them were accused of horizontal collaboration, which was sleeping with the enemy, which they were driven to do in large part because they were desperate for their own survival or that of their children. Most of the women who were accused of collaboration were widows or their husbands were prisoners of war. And after the liberation, the townspeople turned on them and without any court of law or you know legal jurisdiction, they were punished. They were stoned, they were paraded through the villages, they were stripped, they were tarred, and their heads were shaved. That was the mark of being a collaborator. In fact, it was seeing photos of them taken in Time by Time magazine, watching the movie Hiroshima Monomoro that inspired the, the true heart of the book, which was this idea of punishment of women, an unfair punishment of women who were treated more harshly than their male counterparts as scapegoats to assuage the wounded French soldiers. Okay, so we've got a little bit of time left, Anne. So what I'd like to focus on in that time is your advice to our listeners in terms of how to make a setting truly, truly come alive. You know, there'll be some stories where setting isn't that important. The story could take place anywhere, in which case, you know, it doesn't really matter where it takes place. The plot itself is important or the characters are important. But I've you know, written two novels that are based in South Africa. And those were novels that I really had to make the setting come alive for my North American readers who hadn't been to South Africa, who hadn't experienced any of these things. So what is your advice in terms of richly drawing a time and place? What are the things that writers should most focus on when they're trying to make a place truly come alive? I think everyone knows this, but it's the details, the little details. What for me, as a food writer, what are they eating? I'm, you know, even during the war, I was so fascinated by the things they ate, the boiled potatoes. They would boil them because 
the skins, when you boil a potato and you remove the skin, you waste less flesh than if you peel a potato raw. The clothes, there is a wonderful book I used for my history on the fashion of occupied France. But also if you are writing about a place that you visited and you're visiting it as a as a tourist, my greatest tool, I can't, I can't remember things and then write about them. I have to record it in some way. So what I always do is I take a million photographs. And that's really the way I find myself able to recreate something weeks or months later is by looking at these pictures or videos. For the book I'm working on now, which is a novel about the year Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy spent as a student in France, in Paris, from 1949 to 1950. This also grew out of a travel story I wrote for the New York Times. So in researching that, I took, you know, so many photographs. I went to her apartment building where she lived with a host family and sort of snuck into the courtyard and, and took videos of the staircase and the ground floor and, you know, where they took out the, tra- the trash, the garbage. I even took videos of the walk from her building to the metro stop. All of that is the way that I am able to recreate things. And then when you are writing, of course, thinking about it from a full sensory experience, you know, the smells, like a smell can just really, I think, transport someone to a place. Um, just mentioning the way, you know, for me, like when you're walking along the Seine, the way it always smells like men's urine, because in Paris, men are pissing all over the place, is just so immediately evocative. But ultimately, it's it's the details. It's so funny you say that, because when we went to Paris for the first time, I think it was 2013, you know, everybody spoke about the city of love. And I got there and I was like, man, it smells like the city of urine. <laughs> I was like, unless love smells like urine, I don't agree. Yeah. No, but it's true. There are areas that are really bad. (laughs) Yeah, but but it's so true. You need to refer to the senses in order to really immerse someone in a place, you know, tactile, what they see, what they hear, what they smell. So I think really paying attention to things is so is so incredibly important. And this fascinates me because there are writers who write about a place without ever having been there. You hear all the time of of recent books that are based in, you know, whether it's Cuba or whether it's Moscow and and writers were never there and they relied on other people's accounts of a place and they've relied on Google Maps, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, So that to me is pretty impressive that somebody can immerse you in a place without having been there. But I really, I love your approach to research because it just takes it that step further, you know, that you didn't just research wine, that you actually went there and you actually worked doing these things that you were writing about I absolutely love because like you say the devil's in the details and the authenticity that comes from that really truly brings a place alive. I do think it's absolutely possible to write about a place without ever having been there you know and I think that the modern world modern technology really allows us to do that so I don't think people should limit themselves to what they write I think they should feel free to write you know write about a place even if you've only dreamed of going there Um, Um, or dreading going there. I think my one piece of advice would be, you know, writing is hard, but it's also fun sometimes. And anything that you don't feel like you're getting right the first time, you can always go back and fix it. Excellent advice. And ties into what I keep saying is that the magic happens in the rewrites and in the polishing. What we're doing is not brain surgery in that you have to get it right the very first time. You know, we can we can bungle it along the way and then we can come back and fix things up and polish things up so that they sing later. And thank you so much for your time. It was wonderful chatting with you. Thank you, Bianca. Same. I've got a course coming up on the 7th of April from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time called Taking Your Writing to the Next Level. If you've been writing for a while and know all the basics, you just want to elevate your working progress, then this two-hour course is the one for you. It'll give you lots of practical tips for the polishing phase. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes.
calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.